Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. Now you may have heard that two weeks ago, uh, approximately two weeks before the release of this episode, uh, Turkey took a referendum and they conferred great powers uh, to the president Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, that essentially turned him into a dictator, uh, among which are the power to uh, essentially um, decree uh, certain laws, uh, to... <clears throat> appoint uh, ministers, which were formerly appointed by parliament. Uh, and this is a dramatic a dramatic shift in Turkish politics. It was a parliamentary democracy that didn't even have a directly elected president until 2014. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan took office as prime minister in 2003. In 2014, he became the president, which is largely a head of state figurehead type position. Uh, but because it was directly elected, he... he sort of assumed a mandate and began operating before this election even, uh, this referendum, as a dictator. And this is a, a big shock to the Turkish system, and Turkey is an essential country in our modern world. Uh, it is a key NATO ally, specifically in regard to the fight in Syria. Uh, it, it does a lot to absorb some of the refugee flow. It actually has a deal with the EU to absorb some of the refugee flow from the Middle East to Europe. Uh, and <clears throat> it's a key economy. It's one of the G20 economies. So we wanted to dig into what's happening in Turkey right now. Uh, and in order to do that, we sat down with Dr. Hocheng Chahabi, who was actually in Turkey last summer during the coup or the failed coup attempt. Um, but he's also a professor, professor of international relations here at Boston University. And uh, he focuses, his scholarship focuses mostly on Iran, but he does teach classes in Turkish history and he teaches uh, a, a class on, uh, what is it, Turco-Persia Turco in the 20th century. So uh, we're, we're very happy to sit down with Dr. Jahavi. We're very thankful that he spent this time with us. Uh, so we start the episode talking about his experience there last summer during the coup. Uh, and then we move into the trajectory, the political trajectory of the AKP, which is Erdogan's party. And then we talk about uh, sort of what are the implications globally. Um, a couple things that's important to note that are interesting about this election is that despite the fact that Erdogan uh, over the past year has engaged in a sort of purge of the uh, scholarly class, uh, the, um, the journalists and uh, a lot of scholars within universities, uh, and despite the fact that I read today 90%, I think 90% of the ads that were on television regarding the referendum were pro-yes, were for the referendum. Uh, so he was on a very tilted playing field in his favor. He only won about 51% or a little more than 51% of the vote. Uh, so it's really interesting and it's going to be really interesting to see in the next couple of years how opposition to his leadership develops, if it develops at all, uh, or uh, if his autocratic measures will be enough to suppress uh, opposition to him because it only barely worked in this instance. So um, without further ado, uh, this is uh, uh, Dr. Ho-Ching Jahabi and uh, Matthias and myself. So we're speaking right now about a week after the Turkish referendum, and, and I know you were in Turkey during the coup last summer, so could you tell us about that experience and, and what went down and what it was like to be there? Yeah, I was uh, supposed to go to Turkey on June 29th, 2016 to give a lecture, and that flight was cancelled because of the attack on the airport. 
So my lecture was cancelled, but I went anyway because I love Turkey. And so 48 hours later, I arrived. I spent some time in Istanbul. Then I went to the island of Chios, uh, which is a Greek island very close to the um, Turkish coast. And while I was there, the coup attempt happened. So everybody emails me, says, don't go back to Istanbul, come back to Western Europe. I said, my suitcase is in Istanbul. I need to go to Istanbul. <laughs> so I go down to the ferry terminal and say, are the ferries running? They said, yes, the ferries were running as normal. So about 10 hours after the coup attempt, I'm on a ferry and I go back to Turkey. Uh, except I didn't go to Istanbul. I went to the northwest, northeastern town of Trabzon, which is on the Black Sea. Uh, a relatively conservative area, and uh, the hotel I found in that town happened to be very close next door to AKP headquarters. Interesting. So every night I had a, a demonstration in favor of the president, and the flags kept getting bigger. In the beginning, the flags were normal size. By the time I left four or five days later, the flags were about three stories high. <laughs> wow. Uh, and then there was a lot of flag wa uh, waving, a lot of um, talks, uh, patriotic songs. And the most harrowing experience was that on one occasion, among all the Turkish flags, I saw an ISIS flag, uh, the black ISIS flag. Oh. So, uh, but, you know, uh, other than that, it was a very pleasant stay. And when I left, uh, the uh, receptionist asked me at the hotel, do you have a good time? I said, yes. She said, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, uh, that's remarkable. Uh, that's, uh, that's quite the experience. So just out of curiosity, actually, yeah. you mentioned this, this island. I'm, I'm going to mispronounce the name, so I'm Kios. not even going to kiosk. So if I'm not mistaken, is that not the island that there was, there was a rogue a squadron, I, th I think, of, of soldiers who landed a helicopter and saw political uh, asylum from Turkey because they had, they had participated in the coup and that it led to something of a diplomatic row between the, between the Greek government and the Turkish government because, in, obviously, in, in the Turkish perspective, the, these people were traitors. They, right. they committed high treason, right. right? Well, immediately after the coup attempt, many, many uh, <clears throat> officers... Uh, left and uh, asked for asylum in all sorts of countries. I'm not aware of Chios. Mm -hmm. There are about uh, seven or eight major islands that are within swimming distance of right. Turkey, essentially. So I don't know if this was one of, if this is the one where the helicopter landed. Fair enough. Um, and can you, can you, what, what did, what was the government response? I mean, because I know that in the months afterwards, there's yeah. been a tight clampdown. There's been a lot of people yeah. who are fired, but I think 120,000 civil servants and uh, something like uh, 50,000 people have been jailed. But in the in the sort of week after, yeah. um, what did you see a greater police presence? Um, what what was the response that you That's saw? That's precisely the interesting thing. When I arrived 48 hours after the uh, bombing of the airport, right. Uh, on all the ferry terminals, you know, Istanbul has uh, lots of ferry terminals because the boats go back, back and forth between Europe and Asia. And everywhere there would be soldiers and policemen with machine guns, uh, etc. Then after the coup, after four or five days in uh, Trabzon, all I saw on the huge TV screens was a sort of handcuffed policemen and handcuffed soldiers, people who had uh, taken part in uh, the coup attempt, right? 
And so at one point, one of my um, students uh, there tells me, uh, well, be careful in uh, Trabzon because uh, on the outskirts of the city, an attack has taken place on a police station mm -hmm. and two policemen have been killed. So as I was sort of walking through the city, every time I came to an army headquarters, to an army barracks or to a police station, I would sort of walk faster. Right. Uh, then I fly back to Istanbul. We are now about a week after the uh, coup attempt. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is no police presence on the streets, no soldiers presence on the streets. All the ferry terminals where you've had the, where you had had these, um, uh, these uh, um, soldiers with machine guns, none, no uniform personnel to be seen. Um, and I think for me, this was an interesting lesson because it showed the strength of uh, Turkish society. Right. Order did not break down. There right. was absolutely no police presence, no uh, security presence, uh, because I suppose many of them were being rounded up. Right. Uh, and yet there was no um, increase in insecurity and burglaries, etc. Right. Do you, uh, and then I left, so I don't yeah. know. Uh, <laughs> but okay. uh, many of my, uh, my academic friends there would tell me that uh, professors have been fired at state universities. Yeah. Uh, professors have been fired and uh, <clears throat> one uh, rector of a university in the far east of Turkey uh, came crying to one of my friends saying that he had been ordered to fire his entire faculty. So he didn't know what to do about that. Uh, so uh, repression really hit uh, the academic community, um, and all sorts of people uh, who had absolutely nothing to do with the Gulen movement. That raises the question yeah. um, about the Gulen movement. Yeah. I, think, I, I think there's uh, serious misperceptions in the media about what it is, what yeah. it isn't, and it's quite nebulous for somebody who's not familiar with yeah. Ottoman history, Turkish history, gener generally yeah. speaking, because just because of the nature of the movement itself. Yeah. Um, and I think this is actually a good way to kind of uh, to, to kind of approach the the background of, yeah. of Erdogan as well, is in explaining why this this Gulen faction, this Gulen movement, uh, has taken on the proportion of being arguably the enemy of the state number one in in Erdogan's eyes. Yeah. I don't know much about the Gulen movement and when you say that there's a lot of confusion in the press, well, one of the reasons for the confusion is that nobody quite knows what they're up to. Right. Uh, <clears throat> they claim to be a very peaceful movement that sets up schools, very good schools, by the way, uh, all throughout the world, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Central Asia. They dispense a very good education. Uh, their program, their curriculum is not overly uh, religious, in fact. And uh, allegations are that they try to infiltrate state institutions. And that's what uh, Erdogan needed uh, because um, the, the government that he took over in 2002 was a government that had been dominated by secular Turks for about 80 years. Uh, and so he needed foot soldiers to put into place at the medium level of the uh, administration, etc. And many of these Gulen people, apparently, apparently, uh, were willing to do that for him. Now, what exactly precipitated the break between them, um, I don't know. Um, maybe uh, it's a, uh, my hunch is uh, that it was basically a competition for power. 
but um, I don't know more about that. Can you, do you know what specifically uh, the, the individual Fethullah Gülen's uh, role was in Turkey prior to leaving and, and taking exile in the United States? Uh, was he, uh, you know, um, creating these schools while he was in Turkey and then left because of this power struggle? Or did he have a more political uh, role before he left? Um, honestly, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I seem to remember that he always claimed not to have political ambitions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and if we can, I want to sort of go to Erdogan taking power in, in 2003. Um, he was considered, so he started the AKP in 2002 and then uh, uh, becomes prime minister in 2003, if I'm correct. Yeah. And he was seen as a reformer and he was seen actually as a friend of Europe um, because of his sort of uh, democratic uh, bona fides. And, yeah. and I'm curious as to where you see the transition occurring from him being this sort of pro-European figure uh, in 2003 over, you know, a 14-year span, eventually becoming uh, Europe's worst nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a gradual one. And in the beginning, let's not forget, he did many things right. Mm -hmm. um, much of the legislation in Turkey was harmonized with the uh, legislation in Western Europe. The death penalty was abolished. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the leader of the PKK, Ocalan, was arrested, to this day he has not been executed, which would have been inconceivable 40 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, even restrictions on some of the Christian minorities were, uh, were eased uh, to some extent. And so uh, the world uh, applauded. Um, I think his, uh, his conversion to a um, kind of authoritarian dictator was a gradual one. Um, and we see that in many parts of the world when a leader kept, keeps getting elected and re-elected and there were very good reasons why he was re-elected because he did a good job as prime minister. I mean, uh, I go to Turkey on a regular basis and infrastructure has increased, has improved dramatically under his watch. Uh, cities have been cleaned up. Uh, the uh, um, Ottoman monuments, fantastic buildings that had been neglected have been restored. So uh, the Turkey of today looks much more prosperous mm -hmm. uh, than uh, the Turkey that I first saw uh, about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, many of the slums that ring the cities uh, have been um, raised and apartment buildings have been built for the people in them. So uh, there's a very good reason why he wins elections. Uh, he has done things for people who had never sort of uh, had the chance of being looked after by the state. Uh, and maybe that went to his head. Um, there also seems to be uh, an element of personal resentment. Uh, he comes from a uh, sort of lower middle class background. Uh, he is a son of immigrants from this conservative northwest, northeast from the conservative northeast uh, that I talked about earlier. And it seems that he has an instinctive sort of resentment against what uh, is now very often called white Turks. Uh, and he identified himself as a member of the black Turk majority. So what we call black white Turks are precisely uh, the urbanites uh, of uh, southern and uh, western Turkey, 
who uh, sort of very unselfconsciously have adopted a Western lifestyle, who are less religious, not necessarily atheists, but uh, who, uh, you know, the women don't wear the veil, uh, they speak foreign languages, and so on. He is a man who doesn't speak a foreign language. Uh, his university diploma, well, many people claim that uh, they have never seen it, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. So this is a man to some extent re uh, driven by class resentment uh, and by the notion that the former elite, the Kemalist elite, the secular elite, uh, didn't look after uh, people like him. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to some extent uh, his... Uh, his uh, hostility to the West is uh, a hostility to a West that sponsored the elite that he wants to displace. Right. I, so when, when he comes to power in 2003, are there clues as to his sort of uh, uh, is Islamist bent, right? Because he's, he's kind of coming up in rejection to a strong, you know, Kemalist, secular... Yeah. Uh, tradition in Turkey. Yeah. And was that evident in 2003? Because it seems to be something that everyone's writing about now. You know, it's it, it, mm. it's kind of like the, the number one description that comes after his name in any news article. But was that obvious when he took power initially? No, because what had happened was uh, there had been uh, an Islamist party, but inside the Islamist party there was a split. Mm -hmm. And Erdogan led a wing, which later became the AKP, mm -hmm. which claimed not to be Islamist at all, which claimed to be conservative, mm -hmm. uh, but not Islamist. And uh, for that reason, that party attracted members from the previous center-right parties, which by now have completely disappeared. And so in 2004, 2005, the party was very often called post-Islamist mm -hmm. mm -hmm. or slightly Islamist or Islamically inclined. And uh, the changes were very slow. So there was a, actually there was a big debate going on in 2003, 2004. Is he somebody who can be trusted? Uh, is he just pretending to be moderate and conservative as opposed to Islamist so as to gradually take power? Or is he genuinely committed to a secular democracy which no longer discriminates against uh, religiously inclined citizens? That, that raises, I think, a, an important dynamic just in, in Turkish political life, mm. namely, namely the enshrinement of this Kemalist secular culture, mm. right, which has been considered foundational in the conception of the modern Turkish state. It's considered to be, I think, the, the number one condition, I guess, of, of modern Turkey uh, as it transitioned out of, it, uh, out of the, uh, the period of the Ottoman Empire. And, and my, question, my question is this, is as follows. There are allegations, some allegations that are made in, in, in some literature that, that Erdogan is sponsoring what people have coined as a neo-Ottoman project, right, that's uh, that of Islamist inspiration um, that is basically, it, whose main objective is to eliminate any and all remaining institutional traces of the Kemalist culture and the Kemalist tradition. Uh, do, you think, do you think that that's an accurate depiction of uh, Erdogan's movement and his intentions moving forward? The um, neo-Ottomanism is an interesting idea, except uh, the Ottoman Empire was much bigger than Turkey. Right. 
And uh, to revive that project, you need cooperation from those countries that used to be part of the Ottoman Empire but no longer are. And I don't see that cooperation forthcoming. Uh, I don't think the Lebanese, the Syrians, uh, the Palestinians, the Albanians, uh, not to mention uh, the Christians, the Greeks and Bulgarians are in any mood uh, to be uh, incorporated in a new Ottoman uh, kind of order. Uh, at home, one thing that I have witnessed is that the Ottoman past is now much more um, presented in a much uh, better light than it used to be. I mean, part of this is uh, the restoration of all these Ottoman mo monuments. Uh, you had the tombs of Ottoman sultans, which were slowly decaying. They're now being restored. Not sort of a bad thing. Uh, or um, the uh, uh, one thing that I think one should keep in mind is that the break between the Kemalist Republic and the Ottoman Empire was not as deep as we think. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, many of the institutions uh, of the Ottoman uh, Empire morphed into the institutions of the Turkish Republic. Uh, the capital changed, sure. Uh, but uh, the young Turks uh, who took power in the Ottoman Empire in 1908, uh, well, they started the changes and the people uh, around Ataturk who uh, took power in the 1920s were basically young Turks. So um, I think the, um, the, uh, uh, the change between the Ottoman Empire and the Republic is not as drastic uh, as that. For instance, take the issue of religion. We very often think of the Kemalist Republic as a state that practices separation of church and state. Well, that's not the case. Uh, the uh, Turkish Republic uh, treats the Sunni uh, version of Islam, to which about 80% of the population adheres, as a state matter. So there is a department called Dianet uh, that basically governs religion, and it's a government department. And this was so 40 years ago, this was so 30 years ago. Now all the state has to do is basically change the policies that this Dianet, this uh, government department, implements in society. And they have become slightly more conservative, etc., uh, etc. Et School books are being rewritten, uh, the amount of religious teaching in schools is going up, etc. But the instruments for uh, implementing these policies were already there. Uh, that is very interesting. Um, so, uh, the military in Turkey has long been seen as the defender of secularism, of Kemalism, and throughout the uh, 1960s and 70s, I think there were, there were four separate coups uh, in which the military basically decided uh, to, to veto the selection of any given leader, and uh, the military failed in this instance. And so, what, is, what does that pretend for uh, uh, secularism in Turkey, and then um, in what way is this specific coup distinct from the others? All the coups that uh, were successful in Turkey had one thing in common. They were not meant to establish a military regime. Mm -hmm. They were meant to recalibrate the existing um, somewhat unsatisfactory democracy. Um, and uh, having done that, they, the military would usually come in, rewrite the constitution, and then retreat from power. And then they would again decide that the politicians are doing a bad job, they would in again um, intervene, and then retreat again. So uh, this time, um, 
I think two things stand out. First of all, Erdogan had already defanged the military. Mm-hmm. So this, the military that tried to, ex- uh, to execute the coup was already a weakened military, and many generals were just not on board. Right. Uh, so uh, this was not the entire military institutions stepping yeah. in, uh, but only parts of it. Um, and the second uh, point that I'm not a student of uh, uh, civil-military relations, but it just struck me that it was done in a very incompetent way. Right. I mean, uh, they, uh, they didn't seize the main buildings, and perhaps in today's world uh, it's more difficult to carry out a military coup because uh, 30 or 40 years ago you seized the uh, state radio, you seized the state television, and then you could broadcast to the population and tell the population that it's over. Uh, at this point you have 20 or 30 uh, private TV channels, uh, that you cannot control, uh, you have the social media, and you end up a, uh, a, a head of state, uh, Erdogan, who basically tells his for- followers to go out into the streets and stop the tanks. Right. So uh, I don't know whether the failure of the coup is due to um, a kind of sheer incompetence on the part of the leaders of the coup, or whether it also has something to do with the changed nature of Turkish society, which is now connected by social media, etc., etc. Right. You, so you mentioned him sort of defanging the military, and I, I find this interesting because I think uh, one of the big problems in Turkey, and I think we're hearing this word kind of float around in America a little mm. bit more, is the notion of the deep state. Mm. And I think when, as far as I know, when he came to power, he sort of... Um, try to remove some of the elements of the deep state, does that include the, is that what you're referencing when you say he defanged the military or what do you mean when he, you say he defanged the military before the coup ever happened? A number of things um, his, uh, his insistence that uh, his uh, fellow AKP member Gül become president for instance uh, meant that uh, a civilian was now president. Uh, that already marginalized the military a little bit. Uh, I don't remember the exact measures that he took, but uh, in the Turkish constitutional system, the military had certain institutionalized powers mm-hmm. uh, of intervening in the affairs of the country. Right. Uh, I can't remember what, what they were, right. but they did exist uh, at the level of the National Security Council and things like this. And if memory serves correct, he basically eliminated those uh, roles that the military as an institution had in the institutional structure of the country. Uh, and the world applauded. The world applauded because this meant that Turkey was now uh, on the path to a democracy in which the military could no longer intervene. Right. And uh, also, sometime before this uh, coup attempt, he had retired uh, many, many top leaders of the uh, Turkish military, people who might have been critical of him, and replaced them with people who were more favorably uh, inclined uh, to him. Mm -hmm. That's all I can remember. Right, right. So so, uh, what you're saying is that the difference this time is that (laughs) the world almost supported this defanging of the military just on account of the fact that it was... You know, we we've sort of long pressured Turkey uh, to to take steps to become a more traditional democracy for the sake of EU ascension and uh, being a more reliable exactly. NATO, NATO member, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as far as Turkey's you know shifting slightly into into the international implications uh, of of all of this, um, 
how has Turkey's status as a NATO member, do you think, changed following the coup and now following following this referendum? Um, do you think that uh, the you know the United States and other European allies, uh, the mistrust is is going to start pushing Turkey towards Russia in any way? Uh, and if you can shed light on the historical relation at all between um, between Turkey and, and Russia. Well, Turkey and Russia have had throughout history a very tense relationship. Uh, in fact, uh, if you go to uh, Istanbul, which used to be the capital, the oldest embassy there, uh, the first country that set up a permanent embassy in Istanbul, Constantinople, was Sweden. Why? Because the Swedes were fighting the Russian Empire and the Turks were fighting the Russian Empire, so they were allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, uh, basically, Russia expanded uh, at the uh, expense of the Ottoman Empire. They took the uh, Crimea. Uh, millions of refugees from Russia flooded to uh, Turkey, like the Cherkess, for instance. And then in the 19th century, the Russians armed and helped uh, all the nationalities of southeastern Europe to, um, uh, to become independent. So Russia and Turkey have fought a number of wars in which, uh, with the exception of the Crimean War, uh, Turkey usually lost. Uh, and so I don't think there is much of a long-standing uh, sympathy for uh, Russia uh, among the uh, Turkish leadership. However, uh, one is struck by the um, uh, sort of a similar behavior uh, between Putin and uh, Erdogan, um, leaders who initially come to power through democratic ways and then become ever more authoritarian. Uh, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if sooner or later, on, that, on the basis of this affinity of sort of temperament, a, um, an unspoken alliance uh, emerges uh, between them. And that would, of course, be uh, very dangerous uh, for right. NATO. Uh, especially since that um, on the other side, I mean, if you think of the eastern, uh, of southeastern Europe, you have the two easternmost NATO members um, at, on the Mediterranean coast, uh, Greece and um, Turkey, and Greece is led by leftist populists, uh, including former communists, who um, don't have much love lost for uh, the Western alliance either. Right. So um, I think NATO is in trouble in the eastern uh, Mediterranean. Right, right. And I, I mean, I'm curious about, there, there's this really interesting sort of tangling in regard to the situation in Syria where um, the United States needs, if, if we don't want to put boots on the ground in Syria, mm-hmm. we need to rely on the Kurds to take care of northern Syria uh, and deal with the Islamic State there. Um, obviously, this angers, the, uh, this angers the Turks. And so uh, there's this really interesting friction that's building there, and it's kind of... Um, I think going unaddressed for a period of time right now, but uh, one has to wonder how long it could go on that we can support the enemy of our ally Turkey. Uh, and and so I mean, do you see do you see rifts developing in Turkey Turkey-U.S. relations right now uh, as a result of this? Uh, and I mean long-term rifts rather than just you know you can use this airbase or you cannot use this airbase. Yeah. Well, the thing is that. Uh uh, it would be easier to answer this question if one knew what U.S. foreign policy was. Right. Uh, but since U.S. foreign policy has become so unpredictable in the last few weeks or months, uh, it's difficult to, to uh, think ahead. 
what I would like, I mean, I agree with what you say about this, uh, this tension mm -hmm. uh, between us needing to uh, support the Kurds in northern Syria uh, and this fact uh, angering the Turks, but there's more to it. Europe needs uh, Turkey, Europe needs uh, Erdogan uh, to keep the Syrian refugees out of Europe. Right. And so uh, millions of uh, Syrians have entered Turkey, and uh, if Turkey lets them uh, continue their way to, uh, you know, via Bulgaria and Macedonia, etc., to uh, northwestern Europe, then uh, that will have repercussions as well. So Europeans are also in a difficult position because they obviously cannot approve of what is going on in domestic politics mm -hmm. uh, in Turkey. Uh, and on the other hand, they have to deal with Erdogan because his government is what uh, stands between Europe and millions of new refugees that nobody wants. Right, and this could actually be seen as a sort of a bargaining tool for for Erdogan uh, because you know Absolutely. Europe is so reliant upon mm -hmm. him. Um, but I, I want to zoom back in for real quick to so you were there during during the coup, and now we have a, almost a year between the coup and the referendum, mm -hmm. and I want to ask about. Uh, how this has how it uh, the the referendum arose. So, how long after the coup was the referendum proposed? Um, I can't remember. Okay, yeah. I honestly can't remember. But it has been in the air for a long time. Uh, the discussion about the respective uh, advantages and disadvantages of a parliamentary republic as mm -hmm. opposed to a presidential republic mm -hmm. have been going on in Turkey for about 10 to 15 years now. Right. Uh, and uh, to me, the interesting thing is that Erdogan already acted like an executive president before the constitution was changed. Right. And under what authority was he, do you know, was he capable to do that? He just did that and the, the parliament acceded to it because... The, it was ruled by the AKP, basically? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, because uh, when he moved from the office of prime minister to the office of uh, president, uh, he was not supposed to remain the head of the executive. In fact, there was a little uh, conflict because uh, a prime minister was uh, obviously uh, chosen to replace yeah. him as prime minister. And then that prime minister proceeded to try to govern. Uh, and all these orders kept coming from the president's office, do this, do that. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the prime minister resigned, Dalto resigned, and yeah. uh, you got a very pliant kind of non-entity to act more or less as his secretary. Were they formerly allies? Uh, they're all allies. They're all, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all allies. It, actually, it was Dautoglu uh, who formulated the policy of neo-Ottomanism uh, in relation to uh, to uh, Turkey's neighbors, mm -hmm. uh, in other words, he is somebody with uh, with you know you may or may not agree with him, uh, but he is not a lackey of uh, of Erdogan. Right. He is right. of the same party, uh, but he is his own man. Right. Uh, and so even that proved to be too much. And so basically, uh, I would argue that Erdogan placed himself outside the spirit of the law, if not the letter of the law, right. by assuming a, an office, the presidency, uh, which according to the Constitution is more a figurehead presidency. Right. And acting like, a, uh, like an executive president. Right. And what's, but what's interesting about the way he managed to do that is he, uh, I think it was the first, in 2014 when he became president, it was the first direct vote. Parliament used to elect a president. Right. And they changed the system such that he was directed by uh, elected by popular vote so that way he can sort of convert that 
mandate into sort of more expansive informal authority uh, uh, to conduct affairs. Now, I'm curious, do you suspect that uh, uh, Davutoglu, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the former prime minister, um, do you suspect that in the future he might organize any sort of political opposition to Erdogan, given the fact that he was essentially forced out of government by Erdogan? Right. Um, I don't know. Speculation has very often focused on uh, the first AKP prime minister, who later became president, Gül. Uh, Abdullah Gül, um, there were always hopes that since he is a more moderate uh, person who has actually lived abroad, who speaks English, who uh, doesn't have this kind of very provincial outlook Mm -hmm. that Erdogan has, but it hasn't led anywhere. Mm -hmm. So um, I think at this point Erdogan has the... Uh, apparatus of the AKP under his control. Right. Uh, whether there might be a split in it, uh, the way that the first Islamist party split in two wings, mm-hmm. um, I people uh, sort of engage in a lot of wishful thinking on right. that, uh, but I wouldn't dare to make any prediction. Right. Right. Um. And then I, there, are, there are two more issues that I want to get to before we conclude here, which, uh, uh, one of which is terror within, within Turkey. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of the populace puts their faith in Erdogan now because they believe he can clamp down on terror. Uh, and that's especially important because, yes, as you mentioned, I mean, when he came to power over the first maybe seven or eight years, um, there was a wonderful economic recovery. They were facing high inflation when he took office, and and uh, he he really modernized or modernized and helped clean up the country. Um, but now, with a sluggish economy, um, much like many other autocrats around the world, he's kind of having to rely on his um, credibility in stamping out terror uh, in order to uh, in order to to retain a hold on power. But nonetheless, over the past three years or so, there have been something like, uh, I believe, like 30 terrorist attacks, 11 major terrorist attacks. Like you mentioned, you came yeah. 48 hours after a, a terrorist right. attack at the airport. Right. And so I'm wondering, I, I mean, why is it in, in Turkish society that the people that support him are saying, well, he's going to be the guy to clamp down on terror when in the, he has a terrible record of it over the past three years? Um, at the end of the day, nothing can be done about terror. Uh, it only takes uh, one uh, very determined person to uh, blow himself up mm-hmm. and uh, take uh, 10 or 12 uh, people with him. So I think much uh, revolves around rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, has the image of a tough guy mm-hmm. uh, who gets things done. And perhaps it's this image of a, a tough guy uh, who will make Turkey great again. Uh, that uh, moves uh, his uh, his followers. Um, the other thing that shouldn't be forgotten is that he is at the he is at the origin of much of the terror uh, mm-hmm. when the uh, uh, when he basically abandoned the policy of negotiating with the PKK. Right. Um, what happened in some of these uh, southeastern uh, Turkish towns inhabited by Kurds? Uh, was really not nothing short of terror. I mean, entire neighborhoods were raised, people were killed, etc., uh, etc. Et and there was uh, initial support for uh, the uh, Al Nusra Front in Syria, which is the local affiliate of uh, of, um, of Al Qaeda. Uh, there was um, some 
uh, support. I'm not saying from the government, but uh, there were individuals inside Turkey who helped ISIS. So uh, terror is basically built into the system. Right. Uh, and um, it's, um, it's a very, very difficult uh, issue to deal with. The most important consequence of this is uh, that tourism is down. Yeah. Uh, tourism is down, and tourism is one of the major uh, contribute contributors to Turkey's uh, uh, economic miracle. Right. And uh, while relations with Russia were uh, broken, the Russian tourists had also kept coming. But uh, again, much is made of this um, fall in tourism, but it's not as dramatic as many people imagine, because there has been. A, an increase in uh, tourism from the Muslim Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, the city of Trabzon, where I spent five days last summer, uh, there were many, many signs in Arabic uh, f- at, you know, restaurants would have Arabic menus or you had real estate agencies selling land or houses or apartments to Arabs from the Gulf. So, uh, in the sense... Yes, tourism is down, but the fact that Europeans go to Europe in much smaller numbers doesn't mean that other people uh, are not coming. So, um, in a sense, uh, one has to be careful about these things. Right, and uh, I'm curious as to how Turkish society, now that you mentioned Arabs uh, from the Gulf who are tourists there, there's also the other aspect, which is really important, of, of refugees who are coming from a lot of Middle Eastern countries, uh, right. uh, Gulf countries, into, into Turkey. And I'm curious, obviously, Europe has struggled deeply with this issue on a political level, and also in terms of providing jobs mm. or providing some sort of social safety net for the refugees who are coming. Um, do you know anything about how uh, Turkey has managed to to attempt to incorporate or incorporate or assimilate any of the refugees that it's taking, both who are directly crossing into Turkey, but mm-hmm. then also the refugees that they're getting from Greece, uh, because when because of the uh, EU deal, mm-hmm. when refugees come into Greece, they're uh, sent across to Turkey. Yeah, well, the very southern parts of Turkey, the areas adjacent to Syria, mm-hmm. have a local Arab-speaking population. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the integration of Syrian refugees uh, in Turkey is sociologically speaking much easier mm-hmm. than the uh, integration of refugees in uh, in Sweden or in Norway or in Germany because the religion is the same, uh, many of the locals already speak Arabic, etc., uh, etc. Et and on the whole, my impression is that the Turkish state has done a creditable job. Really? Has okay. done a creditable job in providing uh, for these refugees. Uh, there are many, many of them, uh, and Turkey is at the end of the day a middle level, uh, a middle uh, level country in economic terms. So, um, of course, there are things here and there that can be criticized, but uh, on the whole, um, you know, it's very difficult to suddenly deal with millions of uh, newcomers. And uh, one thing that a year ago was in the air, I'm not sure that people still talk about it, at one point Erdogan had uh, mooted the idea of giving Turkish citizenship uh, to all these people. And, um, of course, many people celebrated this as a sign of Turkish hospitality, etc., etc. I think his main reason must have been electoral. 
because uh, in the next election, uh, you know, all these people would have voted for him and would give right. would have given him a supermajority uh, in parliament or right. in presidential elections. And and that also helps sort of. Uh, would help push his credibility on on the religious issue with his own base um, because right. he's trying to push a, a, an Islamist state, you know, a right. religious state. Um, that's interesting. Well, um, I, you know, I think we covered a lot of a lot of ground. I think we covered Turkish history and uh, a lot of the current issues. And I just want to say thank you for sure. Thank uh, you very much for being with us. Sorry, I couldn't be more helpful.